you attended yesterday's Fall Fest or if you've been to one of our fall festivals in the past, you know there's plenty of opportunities for families. There's plenty of opportunities for everyone, but especially kids have a great time, whether it's the cotton candy or the bounce houses or the pony rides. I think my son Liam literally went on the pony rides 16 times yesterday. There's plenty to enjoy. Of course, for the adults or the teenagers, they love the mechanical bull. There's just something about getting on a big bull and getting thrown off of it within moments that people just love and enjoy. I heard a story of a pastor, a pastor who was also a horse rider. If I was going to make a confession, it's an odd thing, an ironic thing, that as the pastor of Colts Neck Community Church, as a resident and citizen of the town of Colts Neck, where you see horses everywhere, I personally am afraid of them. <laughs> I, I, I marvel at their beauty, at their strength, at their elegance. I really do, from a distance. I do not like to get close to horses, and there's nothing in me that desires to get on the horse. I'd much rather watch it run. And that is ironic, but I did hear a story of a pastor a pastor who owned a horse and a pastor who trained his horse to stop and to go with two religious phrases. He trained the horse as soon as he said, praise the Lord, to run. And then he trained the horse as soon as he said, amen, to stop. So he gets on the horse and he goes up into the mountains and he wants to train the horse and he wants to test the horse's ability to obey his commands. So he says, Praise the Lord. And then what does the horse do? The horse what? Goes. And then he says, amen. And what does the horse do? Stops. So he gets very, very excited. It's a beautiful trail. It's a beautiful day. And he wants to see how fast the horse can go. So they're going up the mountain. And sometimes the ledges are narrow. And yes, the drop is steep. And the horse all of a sudden seeming uncontrollably is running towards a cliff. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. And he forgets the command. He says, oh, oh, right, amen, amen, amen. And the horse stops right there, leaning right over the cliff. And relieved, he looks up to God and says, oh, praise the Lord. Right off the ledge. Right off the ledge. Today, we're going to hear about uh, two men. Two men. The first one is going to be the Apostle Paul. And in a similar way, that pastor was knocked off his horse. This pastor, this apostle, not on the road to Colts Neck and not on a road up a mountain, but on the road to Damascus, was knocked off his high horse. You see, this man, the Apostle Paul, before he was an apostle and before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. And he was a man that was filled with passion for the religion of his fathers. He was a man filled with zeal for the traditions and the disciplines of his religious sect, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to bring back a moral, law, lawful, religious revival to God's people so that God might deliver them from Rome. Paul, or Saul at the time was very passionate about this. And the biggest detriment he saw to God's people Israel being obe obedient to God's law 
were Christians. He wanted to use all of his efforts, use every single um, tool that he had to extinguish the movement that Jesus began. And what he would do, and you can read about in the book of Acts, is that he was part of the process that led these Christians, both men and women, sometimes parents, to stand before judges and Sanhedrins where, yes, they would be thrown in prison, or worse, they would be stoned and martyred. Saul was the biggest persecutor of the church in Jerusalem at that day. Some even called him a terrorist of the church. And then God opened his eyes. God met him. God transformed him. God knocked him off his high horse. The one who claimed to see was given scales on his eyes so he could reveal his blindness. The one that he thought was riding high on the horse of his own personal holiness was kicked down to the ground and Jesus Christ meets him, speaks to him, changes him, and then calls him to stop persecuting the church, stop terrorizing the church, but now to become one of the church's greatest evangelists, missionaries, and theologians. There are some people that argue, and there's very few people that argue the first point. The first point is this. There's very few so, uh, scholars, historians, sociologists that argue that Jesus Christ is the most influential person who's ever walked planet Earth. But believe it or not, friends, and think about it, there are some people that say Paul is number two. That this converted Pharisee, that this preacher and theologian, that this man who was such a powerful proclaimer of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, who God used, yes, to um, write under his inspiration huge parts of the New Testament, is probably the second most influential person who's ever lived. But you know what? What was so interesting about Paul the Apostle is that he never sat on a throne. He never had an army. He never enjoyed the benefits of political power. His influence often resounded from prison cells. His influence would shake the world in a dark, dank Roman prison where he would write letters like this, letters inspired by God. While he is without comfort, while he is without his friends and his family, while he is without many of the things that if we were without, we would be without hope. Paul says this, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then listen, friends. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will what? Guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. He says all of this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while he's sitting in that dark, dank cell. And he takes what is true about God and what is true about his peace 
and true about his gospel. And then he gives a personal testimony just verses later. And this, if this doesn't rattle, if this doesn't shake our ideologies in this culture to its very core, I don't know what will. Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me what? Strength. Remarkable, is it not? Gives us perspective, does it not? When we struggle, and some of us, perhaps we're not in a literal prison, but we could be in the spiritual prison of addiction. Perhaps we are not necessarily being persecuted to our faith to the degree that we have lost all our creature comforts and all our personal possessions and all of our friends and family, but the principle remains the same. So what I want to do is to not just read a quote from the Apostle Paul, but read quotes from other influencers, read quotes from other men that have shaped the way that we think today, shaped the way that we look at the world today, and I want us to connect the dots, hear the threads, and see when Paul says rejoice, again I say rejoice, do we hear rejoicing from the lips of these other very influential people? For example, do we find or do we hear joy from the last words or some of the last words ever spoken by the French Enlightenment thinker Voltaire? He wrote, in the twilight of his life, I wish I had never been born. Or industrialist, railroad constructionist, Jay Gould, one of the most wealthy men in America at his time, said this, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Jay Gould didn't find joy in his finances. Lord Beaconsfield across the pond in Britain one of the most respected statesmen, an amazing amount of political uh, prestige and influence. He said this, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, and old age a regret. And then, of course, probably the most well-known, the man who conquered the known world at the time, his title was Great. But even at the pinnacle of his greatness, Alexander wept. Why? Because there's no more kingdoms to conquer. I mean, can we just compare for a moment the attitude and the heart of the military conquest of Alexander who wept because there was no more uh, kingdoms to feed that vacuum in his soul. And Paul, who had no kingdom. There was no military conquest. There no, was no exertion of his will upon the world. And he has found the secret of being content in any and every situation. What's the key? What's the thread? What's our hope? It's Jesus. And in Jesus, it's knowing the presence of God. As we hear about these influencers, and as we hear from the Apostle Paul, I do want us to return to the words of King David in Psalm 16. King David, 
the man who we probably think of as the one who as a shepherd boy slayed the giant. The man that we think of who was the warrior poet, but also the man that we remember as much as he could slay the giant Goliath, he was slain by the sin of adultery. He sinned publicly and it had many consequences. This same king, David, wrote these same words. And I believe in these words, we find encouragement, we find catalysts, we find ingredients for true lasting joy. Let's look at our Bible, shall we? We're just going to look at the last three or four verses here in Psalm 16. King David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How beautiful. What we see here is a good guide, a good reminder, a good plumb line for the battle for joy. Friends, here's the good news. As Christians, this side of the cross, this side of human history, the war has already been won. We don't pray for victory. We pray from victory. Jesus Christ on his cross has conquered sin, Satan, and death finally and forever. For those who trust in him, those who have been saved by him, those who have been born again in his grace, friends, the war is over. But there's battles still to be fought. And some of the battles that we fight are directly related to an issue, a battle that perhaps we didn't connect. A battle that perhaps we re didn't realize was the source of our mistakes. And that's the battle for your joy. That's a battle to trust Jesus with your joy and to trust God with your own personal happiness. When we don't do this, it leads to heartbreak, it leads to division, and yes, in fact, it can lead to destruction. David says this, why is he experiencing this fullness of joy? Well, in verse 9, he talks about how his heart is glad and his whole being rejoices and his flesh dwells secure. He's got gladness of heart. His whole being is rejoicing and his flesh dwells secure. How many of us long for this? A whole holiness. Heart, body, being completely touched by God. That gladness permeates out to our bodies. That's why some of us, we have this testimony, do we not? Have you ever been amazed at how someone who is a perfect physical specimen can be so discontented and so angry? And then, I'm, I'm not kidding, this happens to me as a pastor all the time. Someone whose body is betraying them, someone who battles physical pain. I go to meet with someone like this. I go to pray with someone like this. I go to encourage someone like this. 
and because of the Christ in them, what happens? They encourage me. That makes no sense. They're, I mean, this is the peace that transcends understanding. Like, and I know, I know it. I know they struggle privately. I know there's moments of doubt. I know there's moments of loneliness. I know there's questions and there's dialogue between them and God. But my goodness, what a difference. Perhaps not just circumstantial perfection, but also medicinal or health perfection is not necessarily the ingredients for knowing true joy. David is saying, my heart is glad and it's overflowing into my being and even my body. My flesh dwells secure. How many of us know that it's hard to just be? Right? Like, why can't we just be? Why can't we just be still? Why can't, I mean, we have kids, we have jobs, but it's, it's more than that. Like, we constantly need something. And these smartphones, man, they are not helping. <laughs> constant distraction, constant engagement, constant action. We're called human beings. We don't even know how to be. He's saying, my flesh, when my heart is glad, and when my being rejoices, <sighs> my flesh can dwell secure. I could just be. Verse 10, and I love this. This is a foreshadow of the gospel itself. Verse 10, King David said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is another way of saying the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Why is David in this beautiful psalm leading to a crescendo of rejoicing and praise because he knows how much the next life influences this life? Those two are connected. If we do not believe there is an afterlife, if we do not look forward to the next life, if we are convinced that all there is to life is this life, and that life could be gone in any moment, in any second, does that affect our spirits? Does that affect our thinking, our peace? Does that affect our purpose and our priorities, our spending? Absolutely. The reality that there is a God and that the reality that there is an afterlife has direct implications for this life and how we live. Here's the good news. David understood this. Even before Christ came, even before the first Easter, even before Jesus rose from death itself, David understood this. God's not abandoning you in that grave. I mean, death, think of it. We all like to think about death, right? <laughs> not at all. We run from it. We hide from it. We do everything in our power to avoid it. But think of it for a second. It's the one inevitable, inescapable reality of our life. That in taxes. None of us are escaping that ultimate reality. So does it make sense to not think about it? Does it make sense to run from it? Does it make sense to try and hide from it? Or does it say, does it make sense to say, no, okay, one day it's really going to happen. What does it mean for my today? What does it mean for my forever? Here's the truth about death. Death is the final enemy and the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you got in the bank. 
It doesn't matter how many toys you have. How many of us have ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? You can't take it with you. No, the truth is this. It doesn't matter what your address is. It doesn't matter how great your resume is. It doesn't matter how many people applaud you and praise you in this life. When death comes creeping and knocking at your door, is that the end of you? Do you have hope in the next life? David says, my God will not abandon me. Not even death itself. Not even death itself. I got to say it again. The one inescapable reality. Death. Not even death itself can separate you from the God who loves you. If that's not good news now, when you can feel it creeping up on you, it will be. In that moment, if you have not already, look to Christ. Look to him for forgiveness and hope of everlasting life. David understood that hope even now. And in verse 11, it leads to this overflow of gratitude. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life leads to the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Where does this path lead us? How do we get on this path? Where all of it is found? He says, in God's presence. Can we say that together? In God's presence. Go. In God's presence. When we understand that the reason for joy's absence is because we have not sought God's presence, then all of a sudden, everything changes. We see that our own personal happiness is not antithetical to our own personal holiness. No, the closer that we grow in our faith, the closer that we get going deeper in God's presence, the more that he is going to give us a desire for himself and the more that our desires for the things of this world will diminish and fade. David understood this. He understood that in believing in God, in trusting in Yahweh, it's a revolution of desires. It's a complete revolution of pleasures. But I thought, Pastor, I thought pleasures were bad. Well, a lot of the ways that pleasures are described in culture, yeah, not good. But Scripture talks about God as the one who gives us the delights, the desires of our hearts. Of course, true enjoyment happens inside of God's covenanted guidelines inside of his blessings and his commandments. Where do we find this? We find this first and foremost in Jesus himself. Jesus said it in John 15. Hear the words of Christ. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Complete or full, right? God says through Christ that the Father loves me and the Father loves you. Remain in that love. Obey his commands. How many of us, when we are tempted to 
disobey one of his commands, don't diagnose that temptation as a battle for your joy. How many of us in that moment, in that headspace, with all of that internal battle, we don't see it as a battle for our own personal joy, but we should. We should. Jesus said, if you obey, you'll remain in my joy. Sam Storms put it like this. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, but it is the presence of God. We can be fit, experiencing physical pain and still know peace in our hearts. Thomas Brooks said this, man's holiness is now his greatest happiness. And in heaven, man's greatest happiness will be his perfect holiness. Or as John Piper said it like this, my quest for happiness is now nothing other than a quest for God. And he has been found in Jesus Christ. I like how the Bible says it in 1 Peter chapter 1. The apostle Peter now saying, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So where is joy found, friends? The answer is simple yet unexpected and the path is not often walked, even by Christians. True joy is found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus is the origin and the originator of joy. Jesus is the alpha and the omega of joy. Jesus is the beginning and the end of joy. What makes a heart joyful is a heart full of Jesus. Sam Storms again put it like this. The reason we resist God's law and pursue our own sinful strategies is because we believe that we can do better at securing our own happiness than God can. Did you catch that? Meaning that we really do think we're better at God's job and we would be better at securing our own personal happiness than he would be for us. So this is why when we come to God, we understand him to be a good father. We understand him to be a loving, gracious God. So we turn. We turn from ourselves and our sin and we return to him and his grace. And in doing so, we're returning to his lordship, not only over our sin, but friends, our lordship over our own personal happiness as well. The biblical truth is this. Holiness is not the enemy of happiness. True holiness is in fact required for true happiness. All of this is found in Jesus. Don't try to do this without Jesus. It will lead to emptiness and anger. Galatians chapter 5 says this, talking about the symptoms of a joyless life, the symptoms of when our sin runs amok, here are the symptoms of the disease. Ready? Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. 
dissensions and factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, the Bible says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's presence, the fruit of God being in your heart is this. And how many of us long for this? Ready? This is what the presence of God leads to. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What do we want? Well, we're a walking paradox, are we not? Because we all want that. I mean, if I had to survey, and if we're all being brutally honest, how many of us would say, no, I don't want more love in my life. No more joy, thank you. I am completely content with my fits of rage, and so is my wife. None of us. And yet, here's the battle. Here's the battle. How much do we believe God is a good father and has our pleasures and our joys in mind when he pulls us from our sin? The analogy that I often use is the one of my daughter Abigail, who's nine. And uh, when she was a, a baby, and she was always an angel, she was just wonderful, and I love her, and, I, and she's my little sweetheart. But when she was in her crib, she would just scream. She would hate being in her crib. So when she would wake up from her nap or from sleep, she would cry out for daddy, right? And of course, for my little angel, I come running. And when she would scream, I mean, she would really scream. Like she was miserable. Like she wanted to get out of that crib as if it was on fire. So I come running and there she is crying, tears in her eyes. Daddy, I want to get out. Save me, daddy. Deliver me, daddy, from the horrible crib. I said, Abigail, I'm here to rescue you. And I take her up and then she looks down. Oh, wait a second, Daddy. And she wanted her toys. She wanted her fluffy little teddy bear. She wanted her blankie. She wanted all of her toys. She wanted to be delivered from her pain and yet still take the things that were with her while she was suffering. She wanted the things that were still surrounding her even though she wanted God or Daddy to deliver her. Over and over again, I think of this. No, when we cry out to God and we say, deliver us, God, we say we want more of your presence, God, let there be no asterisks. Let there be no fine print. Let there be no, yeah, exceptions to the, role, uh, to the law. Look at the amendum. Look at the amendment. Look at the uh, page six, paragraph two. No. When we say, God, save me, he is able. He is willing to do it, but let there be no catches or excuses. So when David said his joy was overflowing because he knew that the Lord would not abandon him to death, and he looked to the joys that were going to be his forevermore, what better way to encourage us to run to God's presence today than to think about God's perfect presence in his presence in heaven forever. And that's why we're going to read, I'm going to read the end of our Bible, Revelation chapter 21, about what life will look like in the new heavens, the new earth, 
when His presence finally reigns supreme. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Envision this, my friends. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will be with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. Listen, friends, Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has finally and forever passed away. Friends, let us keep our happiness where it can't get hurt, in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, pray and then we'll come to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that guides and instructs, for your grace that leads us to repent and to return and for the cross of your Son, where we can know there is forgiveness of sin. The cross of your Son, where we remember, my goodness, how serious you take sin, God. But also, how far you are willing to go to save sinners like us. So God, we pray that we would turn from our own personal pursuits of happiness and trust in your grace and pursue your holiness as you give us joy from the inside out. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23.